My name is Julian Fellows and I wrote the script. I am Sam Delaney. I'm a journalist and broadcaster and a big football fan and keen viewer of the show. I'm Andy Dawson. I'm a writer and a podcaster and a football fan. So, Julian, I'd love to know what drew you to football as the cornerstone when you wrote this series? Really what drew me to this story and this topic when Eddie Charlton brought it to me uh, was the fact that it was a story that was playing out in miniature what was happening in the British Isles and indeed Western Europe at that time as a whole. Uh, And I liked that. I liked the sort of parable quality that this uh, gradual recognition of the power of the working class, the initial attempts to restrict that power, keep them back, uh, you know, as they would have said in their place, the the understanding that came on the intelligent rather more quickly than on the foolish, uh, that they weren't going to stay in that place and they were coming forward. All of that is played out in the history that we have in the English game. Uh, and, you know, you've got this group of public schools and representatives of them who had, to be fair, codified the game. They made the rules unified for the country. Only rugby stayed out because they preferred their own version of the game. And of course, it's remained as a different sport to this day, but everyone else fell in. Uh, It suddenly became a kind of serious adult sport and all the rest of it. So I don't want to diminish what they'd done, but what they didn't realise was how quickly football would become a national obsession. And they went through these years of when there were, you know, 200 clubs being started every year in different mill towns and different coal towns and so on. And suddenly there was this incredible, incredible phenomenon. Uh, And it meant that these other teams must have a say in how football was run, how it was managed. And they wouldn't accept that. And they kept sticking to the FA rules and there were to be no professionals, which was the only way to keep the public schools at the top. Because without professionals, the working class teams would never have enough practice to get up. They were working seven days a week or at least six. And, you know, apart from anything else, the FA players uh, were eating better. They were bigger. They were bulkier. They had more muscle, all of that. Uh, And into that came... Fergus and Souter, who really were the kind of precursors of the modern game because they realised that they could never beat these people by smashing them. They could only beat them with skill. And they brought the passing game down from Scotland so that from the moment they were in the game, the game started to change. And suddenly, smaller players, as long as they were quick and nimble and talented could see the possibility of their own victories. And that grew and grew and grew. And then eventually, of course, uh, the Blackburn beat the Old Etonians in 1882. And after that, I think I'm right in saying no public school team ever won again. You touched on the, the class war element, which I'd love to come back to shortly. But Sam and Andy, I have to ask, as two proper football fans... How much of this history did you actually know before you before you watched this first episode? Very little. And I'm watching it and it's fascinating and compelling. And I'm thinking to myself, what kind of an f- idiot am I that I've devoted so much of my life, my time and my attention to this sport? And I've never really been adequately curious about where it all came <laughs> from. 
I, I didn't. I really didn't know. And uh, you know, uh, the, the fact that it was actually created as a codified sport by public schools is sort of hilarious. Because growing up as a football fan, you think, oh, they never play football at places like Eton. They only play cricket and rugby. So I felt very silly watching it because <laughs> I thought this is. I did. I thought this is a fascinating story that I really should know more about. But it's fantastic, and it even hints at the, the history before. The, um, you know where where your show starts because it you know he makes reference in the first episode so they codified it sure. but it had been going on for a long time beforehand in a more chaotic and anarchic way presumably in all sorts of towns and villages. Well, it was. I mean, in the schools, the public schools where it was played, uh, they all played to different rules. They played it, but they would say, "Oh no, we don't do that here. Here, you can cross the line." Here you can pick up the ball. Here we don't play with that ball. We play with this ball and all of that stuff. Uh, that had gone on. Uh, but it, it really, uh, in the streets, it was still a kickabout. It reminds me of Paul in the pub. You know, you go to a pub and every pub has different rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, oh, no, you can't shoot back in this pub. It's the same yeah. sort of thing. You're never quite sure. But it's that, it's that thing about the fact that it was codified and the rules were established, but... The old Etonians were very much saying, they're our rules, and you play by our rules. And when they tried to, to get extra time played in that quarterfinal in the first episode, it was like, no, no, we're not going to have that. Because, oh, yeah. Because they knew they weren't going to win. So it's like, they, we, we have devised these rules. You know your place, stick to them. They thought it was their game. Yeah. And, uh, and they wanted to keep control of the mm -hmm. game. Why did they invite them in? I suppose it just makes the competition more interesting. Well, it was inevitable, moment. really, because mm. of the growth in popularity. There's no way they could have stopped them. I think that's it. Yeah. I, I think they couldn't have stopped them. In, the only way they could have stopped them was by making the FA Cup a very minor little thing that was happening on the edge of the pitch. Uh, because if they wanted to keep it central to the game, they had to take on all comers. Uh, and, and these teams were formed. Originally, you know, there weren't that many... They applied to join, they joined, they came down, they played. Sometimes they played jolly well, you know, that kind of thing. But they were always knocked out by the quarterfinals. Yeah. And then you'd get back to the, the real game. And then gradually they weren't always knocked out by the quarterfinals. Yeah. And then they were there in the semifinals. And finally, in 1882, they won the finals. Business of football is growing. You're afraid of them, aren't you? You're afraid new teams like Darwin will take over your game. We invented it. For gentlemen. When you were writing it then, did, did football start to almost become this huge metaphor for society in that you've got the elite inventing a system and then kind of making up the rules as they go along? Because again, in that first episode, when they say, no, no, we're not, we're not, we're not going to uh, have extra time, we're going to do a replay. I'm like, this is literally just life. The people that create the system are going to make up the rules as they go along. It, it became so much more than football, it seemed. Is that, is that how it felt when you were writing it? Oh, yes. When, when um, Eddie first brought it to me, I immediately could see that this was, this was what was happening in the greater world, being played out in miniature, if you like, that this one aspect of the battle of football and this essentially a peaceful revolution within football was representative of the peaceful revolution that was happening outside football all over society, which would finally be, in a sense, finished off after the First World War when you have the, the enfranchisement of women and everything else uh, that was changing 
uh, and, and you have in the 20s the first Labour government and so on, that these things that they had held back for as long as they could were engulfing them. And the only thing to do was to turn the direction you were swimming in and try and keep in the front of the people who were swimming fast, you know. Uh, and, and that was their realisation, and it was the realisation of the footballers, and it was Arthur Kinnaird who led the Old Etonians into the acceptance that this was the game of the future. I mean, you know, what was extraordinary, because the mill owners and the coal owners and the owners of factories and traders and so on, you're always looking for a way of binding your workforce, of making them feel content in their work. I mean, you do anything you can to make people not feel, oh, God, another bloody awful day. And whether it's piping in Radio 4 in the 50s, you know, and whistle while you work or whatever, uh, you, you do anything. And what they quickly saw in the 1860s and 70s particularly was that if they gave a bit of money to the funding of a local team and they set aside a field where they could play and where people could come and watch them, they would have this very strong unifying effect on that community. And once they started to play neighbouring teams and you get two mill towns playing each other and all the rest of it, then this tremendous sense of team loyalty builds up. And that, to a certain extent, carries itself into the factory, down mm. the mine, whatever. And you get this bondage, you get this sense of belonging to something valuable. It's that tribalism, isn't it? And that's still in tribalism. To this you're, you're, yeah. In a sense, you're feeding positive tribalism. And, uh, you know, whether you do that with a brass band or you, you know, whatever you do it with, that's what you're trying to get. And what none of the owners could believe at the beginning was how quickly they could get it with football. I mean, one season they could they'd start off the game and by the next, people were packing into the field to see their local sides play. It was an astonishingly quick ascent that, you know, to a degree, caught them down south on the hop. You, you know, it's interesting to me because you're not, a, um, you know, a lifelong football fan yourself. So what was your perspective on how that grew so quickly? Because I often wonder about my own, you know, almost addiction to watching football, right? I can't quite work it out. I kind of think, if I step back, what is it that's so compelling about this sport? Is it just a cultural thing that I became addicted at an early age? Why do you think that that sport took off so quickly? Because it didn't. It wasn't even played in the sort of beautiful way it can be now, was it? At first, like you said, it was a lot of charging about. Oh, it was and a very muscle. rough game. It was kind of all about muscle rather than, than mind. Absolutely. I think it's something to do with the fact that we have a need to win in our lives. We, we are satisfied by winning games rather than losing them. Uh, and the thing about football is it has these marvellous winning moments, that the, the, the moment of scoring is visual and clear and obvious. If you're trying to score in golf, you know, oh, yes, it's coming down the green now. And it's, and it's all very tempered and back, back mm. foot. Whereas that's not true of football. It's wham, back of the net, you know. And uh, I think that's part of it, that by watching these people, you could enjoy their victory and you could feel like a winner. And, uh, you know, at that time, life for the working class was very tough. These were hard lives. And you had to work very, very hard, long hours, with very little respite. And that rush of feeling like a winner 
must have been, you know, in, in strong demand. And football gave them that, gave them a sense of triumphalism and glory. And, and I don't think much else did. So I, I suspect that that was probably the reason. I think that's true. It, that, that sense, that adrenaline thing, that you, when your team does score a goal, there's no feeling like that really, is there? In any other sport, I don't think. Um, I think that's why as well that the video replay thing is so, <laughs> is so hated by so many people because that's been taken away now. Your team scores a goal and then you've got to wait for the verdict to come through. You know was that thinking, even a goal or not? While Julian was speaking and explaining to me so eloquently why I feel the way I feel about <laughs> football, I was thinking, play this to the Premier League now yeah, so they yeah. know why we don't want this video replay system mm-hmm. in place because it is about the rush of excitement mm-hmm. and euphoria that you get in those key moments. And actually, technology's taking that away now. It's what, is the, what is the, explain well, the video Well, it's a VAR. Replay. They've just brought it in this this season. And it's a video replay um, thing where, whereby if there's a contentious decision that the referee might not have got quite right, they play it back. There is a mysterious kind of group of, of referees off the field who watch it back on video and then communicate with the referee in his ear telling whether or not he's got it back. But as a result of that, when a goal is scored, rather than runaway celebrating and rather than in the crowd us all celebrating there's a pause while we all look at the referee wait for him to get video replay right and you just stop so that kind of mad rush of euphoria that you've just explained has actually been removed because you have to wait for it to be analysed and it sometimes takes quite a long time for them to make a final decision it slowed it right down yeah every goal goal is now analysed it's almost as if these these anonymous people in this room somewhere are forensically looking at the goal and the build up to see if they can see anything that they can rule it out for. What do you make of that, Julian? Well, I'm not the first person to fail to understand the offside rule. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, the the only obvious parallel I can think of to that is this habit they have now in the opera of putting over titles where it translates what they're singing. Right. And so the whole audience is not looking at the screen. They're looking at these things. Because in opera, the dialogue is very simple and not usually very meaningful. They say, I want a piece of cake, I want a piece of cake, can I have some cake? He wants some cake. And this goes on and on and on and on. And what we're missing is the performance. Mm, yeah. And, and it completely blunts the effectiveness mm. of the performance. Get VAR out of opera, I yeah. <laughs> I've had enough of it. It's ruining, some cake it's in ruining this opera. Well. I fancy some cake now. I've seen you play. You're a genius. People won't stop shouting your name. The market is saturated. Our mills are struggling to turn a profit. Whilst our wages are being cut, you were paying them to play football. But that's against the rules. Rivalry's good for business. Their stomachs will be empty long before our pockets. I'd actually love to ask you both, Sam and Andy, as, as two guys who are really immersed in the beautiful game in its current guise, where there's big corporate sponsorships and there's big transfer deals and transfer windows. When you watch something like the English game and you see that that early incarnation of the sport where even the thought of paying someone is is frowned upon, do you think kind of money has been a gift or a curse really on the game? Money's been a, a constant within football. That was one of the things I thought when I was watching it. I thought there's a lot of parallels with how it is now. Money is the overriding factor in football. It kind of was then. It is now. I mean, I, I know one or two people who've almost turned their back on watching top-flight Premier League football and they'll go and watch a non-league team because it's just for the love of the game. And I'll go and watch my local non-league team in Sunderland now and again and it's a completely different experience. 
It's just that there's a, a, a tin shed almost that you stand under or you stand around the side of the pitch. But the game, it's still 22 people playing, kicking a ball around. But it's just completely free of all of the, um, like you say, the corporate sponsorship and the, the effects of money. Do you think you need to kind of go to those lower league games then to kind of get that pure feeling again? You know, it's difficult. My team, West Ham, is, is a small, you know, you get a taste of both because West Ham were, were a very working class team from a very working class part of London that actually came out of dock workers. They were originally called Thames Ironworks and they, and they played in a fairly scrappy little ground in the East End. And then a few years ago, about four years ago, we moved into the Olympic Stadium. The thing is, although the experience of going to the game has probably become worse for a lot of people because it, it lacks that kind of, you know, the grittiness or the sense of connection to your community that, you know, is reflected so well in the show um, and you can still get at non-league games, like Andy says. The truth is money has also created the actual spectacle, the aesthetic spectacle of football is better because of money, right? It, it is a better sport to watch. So the experience of going to a non-league game, right, and you feel more connected to the people there, to the players on the pitch, you hear them shouting, you can relate to them, you know, that's something that I think most football fans can appreciate. But the the game is rubbish, right? <laughs> it, it, it's absolute, they're rubbish. They're, they're, not, they're not good at playing football. It's not like you're not watching something beautiful, you know. When you watch Premier League football now, they are... Uh, elite athletes they're like the, the the most elite athletes in the world when even when i first started going to football in the 1980s there were still fat blokes making a living in top teams playing <laughs> football right they, they were kind of blagging their way i love you martha but this game brings out the worst in you there are people who don't think working men should be playing the game i feel like a fraud you've got a gift of some is that tribalism then that, that we've spoken about so much at risk of being lost? Because part of what I loved about the, the first episode of, of, of this series was you've got the, the, the team playing for their school, you've got a team playing for their mill. In the modern day, my little brother's just decided that he supports Barcelona. Yeah. He's never even been to Spain. Yeah. <laughs> is, yeah. Is, yeah, that, yeah. is that tribalism as, yeah. as the game evolves at risk of, of being lost forever? Things have to move, you know. Mm. If you could, I mean, there was a time, you're all too young, but in the 60s, at the time when we won the World Cup, uh, and I watched it as a boy of 17, um, those people, the Bobby Charlton people, were very respected, very admired, very prominent leaders in society. But they didn't end up billionaires with Lamborghinis. No. They, they ended up with a you know, a pub or a gents outfitters mm -hmm. or something. And they and they became the wise old men of football. And that for me was a pretty perfect balance because I think the game was good. It was it had its rules. It was a, a, a clean game that was being played. The real violence hadn't started. Yeah. These people were respected. They were paid and they were paid well, but they weren't paid as if they were the Sultan of Turkey, you know. Um, and there was a sort of middle ground of sanity but the, the difficulty with history is you can never stop the needle. Mm -hmm. It has to keep moving. And once money had come into the game in order to create this great money-making spectacle that we are now witnessing, it was bound to change it fundamentally. And I do think the old tribalism of feeling this is your local game, you get that in very junior clubs, but I don't think you get it at the top of the game anymore. No, I agree. I agree. But... 
if I'm really honest, I think, yeah, but God, football's so much better than it was when I was a kid. I mean, for a number of reasons, mainly to do with money. One is I used to be terrified when I went to football when I was a kid, which as I got to adolescence, I did find sort of mildly thrilling as well. But it was genuinely dangerous at a lot of football grounds to go. The pitches were muddy. The players were out of shape. And also it was quite hard to feed your football addiction back in those days because nowadays football's everywhere and that's great like, because you know I'm, I'll be walking along the street reading about my local the, the team news on my way here on, on the phone or, or what have you or listening to podcasts or whatever everyone's interested in it it's written and talked about everywhere and I love that but I remember being a kid and you'd be like at best on teletext wouldn't you reloading the same page <laughs> you'd spend the whole summer holidays reloading one page about yeah. your club on teletext waiting for something new to happen right I kind of dreamt of one day football being this mainstream <laughs> sport where you could talk to anyone about it and it was everywhere. And also, guess what? It was really exciting and, and well put together and, and not in a dangerous, muddy old field, but yeah. more like American football, you know, where it was sort of slightly more glamorous and put together. And so I kind of missed the edge that there used to be at West Ham's old ground. I do. But at the same time, I really love watching players from Brazil play for my team. <laughs> I've been to West Ham's old ground. Have you? Because a friend of ours was working there and um, Peregrine, my son, was absolutely obsessed with Man U. And Man U were coming down to play West Ham at West Ham. So we went there, we had the lunch and we went into the old... Uh, I mean, it was quite scrappy. Yeah. Uh, but I thought they were marvellous. I thought, that, you know... Man U, I mean, I'm sure West Ham has many, many points and virtues, but uh, Man U at that time rather opened my eyes. I suddenly, the skill of the way they played and the way they came down sort of in, in a kind of ballet formation, I mean, it was absolutely extraordinary. And I never forgot that. It was a very haunting moment. And, and they won, of course. Well, I was going to say, I don't know which game you're referring to, but whatever it was, they almost definitely won. Yeah. <laughs> the only way to show them that they're wrong is to beat them. This is bigger than football. Bigger than any of us. This is your dream, Fergus. Remember that. It's clear what the people want. Guys, I think, I think that's a lot of football chat. I think we need a brief intermission. And what better way to break this up than Jennifer Saunders? Over to you, Jamie. Thank you very much, Dottie. Uh, now, I'm sure a lot of you will have already seen this show, but you know what? There's probably quite a few that haven't yet discovered the fantasticness of Harlan Coben's The Stranger. Uh, fans of Safe, which was on Netflix a couple of years ago, were overjoyed to find out that Harlan was doing another show for Netflix. And when The Stranger came along, we were not disappointed. No sirree, we were not. They'd upped their game considerably as well. In this series, we have got none other than Richard Armitage. We've got Siobhan Finner and we've got Devla Kerwin. We've got Paul Kay and the lady that I'm just about to talk to. Miss Jennifer Saunders, the comedy legend herself, the creator of Ab Fab, one half of French and Saunders, in her first, I think it's her first series acting role. She's brilliant in it, The Stranger is fantastic, and here is what she had to say. Jennifer Saunders, welcome to What to Watch on Netflix. How Thank the devil you very are much. You? Are you well? Yes, I'm very well indeed. Do you like getting your teeth into kind of like a dramatic role? Is it does it does it flex a different muscle? I suppose it does. I mean, it does. You sort of build it up to be very different, and then when you're actually doing it, 
um, it's it's the same, but without the jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Although you do try and keep it light and believable. What's it like working on on a show where so much of the tension is derived from not knowing what's coming next? It's very easy, really, because the the pressure is on the director. <laughs> <You know? laughs> to keep I it mean, interesting. I mean, we just watched the first episode, and I was really impressed by the atmosphere he creates, you know, and you're not really aware of that when you're shooting the scenes because it has to, on you know, it has to appear like normal life. Yeah. And the atmosphere and the threat is what the editor does and he does when the music does. You didn't have to stay with her, you know? Do I know you? She told you she was pregnant and then she lost the baby. She made it up. She was never pregnant. I love you so much. Tell me that. Did you fake your pregnancy? I need you to tell me the truth. Tell me that. Corinne. Adam, this isn't what you think. There's more to this. When you read scripts, do you just flick through to your own bits or do you, watch, do you read the whole lot? First count the lines, then <laughs> read the lines, <laughs> and then read the whole script. Draw up an Excel graph of who's got the most. it's not about how many lines. It's about, is it a good character? Yeah. Is it significant? Would I enjoy doing it? Is the whole thing going to be great? Yeah. That matters less because you think, could I do this and be good in this? But with this, it was a, it really was... Very easy to say yes, because um, Nicholas Schindler has such a fantastic pedigree, as does Harlan. Yeah. And the cast was fantastic, so... Did you suss out what was going on before before you finished the script? Because, I mean, that's one of my favourite parts about watching shows like The Stranger, is that, is that uh, you're constantly trying to second-guess. You're like, who the hell is she? What's she doing on that street corner? And you know. Well, it was in the read-through that I got the best sense of it, yeah. because... You hear all the parts read and you go, oh, my God, never saw that coming. Because you're just sent the scripts that you're in. Right, okay. And there's other scripts you're not in. So you don't, you don't you even just, get to read the whole story. So you don't get to read the whole story. And it, it is a revelation, a revelation. A lot of The Strangers based around trust and about how much mm. we think we know about people. Mm. Do you find it easy to trust people? Um, yes, I think so. I think um, I'm quite good at sussing out who's... Who's not right? Who's a complete <laughs> bastard? <laughs> Do you run a three strikes and you're out rule, or is it kind of like are you a bit of a tougher cookie? No, I don't think I commit very easily. I think I'm a bit, I'm warier than are you know. You? I'm not a great big. Is your default? Oh, come in and have some tea. Your default position is. Your default My position default is position is. Oh, God, I really need somebody else in my life. Well, this is know? it. How many friends do we need? Oh, we don't need, you know, and you get to a point in your life and you go, I haven't got time to see the people I really love. Yeah. Um, I don't. You don't need to be super sociable when you get older. Well, it's one of the glories it's of getting just, older is that yeah. you can turn things down guilt-free. And it's yeah, like, oh. you just go, honestly, I don't, see the, I don't see my family enough. No. Let alone new friend. <laughs> so-called new yeah, friend. so-called what, new friend. What do friend. they really want? What are you after, <laughs> new friend? You should be able to tell them as you meet them, I'm not going to have time for you, but I do like you very much. Yeah, can we... Can we but, that's, but that's what you're supposed to... I'm not going to be able to see you at you're all. Spo- you're supposed to be honest in relationships, aren't you? So you should be able to same, do the same in friendships. Exactly. It's like, just to clarify, this is a strictly biannual affair. Yeah, it's <laughs> exactly. Like, there's lunch at Fortnum's at Christmas. Yeah. After that, you can go jump. Yeah. I would say my best friend I probably see twice a year. And but because we are best friends, we can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Where's Mum? I don't know. How can you not know where she is? Or do you? 
I know you two have been having issues for a while. What? You know something that I don't. As a parent, do you think kids have got it easier now? Because I, I think about some of the things I got away with doing when I was kind of like 13 compared to now. Kids, kids don't get away with anything. They don't get away with anything, but they are... I think it's much harder for kids nowadays because they're bombarded with so much. And I, I, I mean, I, I do fear for... I, I've got a feeling that the next generation will reject a lot of the internet stuff. I'm very aware that you have to treat the internet as if they're out on the street on their own. You know, you have to make sure they know how to cross the roads, they know how to shut doors, they know how to say no to people. And they don't go around down dark alleys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's... it's it's, tough it's a they... parent's responsibility to understand the internet and stop it happening. Where's a shoe? Over here! Get an ambulance and call for backup! We've reason to believe that your wife was at the scene of a murder. This doesn't make any sense. For people that haven't yet binged watched The Stranger, how would you how would you sum it up? It's What's your back of fag packet pitch? Wow, it's it's got a bit of everything, I think. It's a psychological thr thriller, but it's also a detective story. And it's it's a warning. <laughs> yeah, against <laughs> a lot of things. Yeah, a lot of things. I'm up, to, I'm up to the end of episode three and I can't wait to carry on. But it, at the moment, it's kind of, it's one of those shows where you're thinking, none of this can surely be related because that's just all crazy. I know, I know. And it is, it is bizarre how it all connects. And, and remind, remind the listeners who you play. I play Heidi, who is a mother of... A older teenage girl who's at uni, married, seemingly happily married, two of the biggest dogs you'll ever see in your yeah. life. Um, and life is good. And I'm best friends with Siobhan, who plays the detective in the show. But it takes just a moment yeah. to break this all down, something that's told to me, to make her whole life just slide into the abyss quickly, you know. It's very exciting. It is. And I, I loved playing that. I loved playing those moments when you think, oh, my God, someone has just told me this. <laughs> what am I going to do? And it's that's why I think a lot of people enjoy it. It's because you can relate it to your own life. You think in your own life, if everything just seems to be ticking over, what would it take just to tip it? This stranger turns up all mysterious and drops bombs on people and then just gone. Is this some kind of joke? Please don't tell Dad. This stops now. What is it with you and your mother sticking your noses into our business? Now you know she's a liar. Nobody wants this to be happening. How's that lovely wife of yours? I think we're done here. She had to be stopped. Oh, my God. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Is this some kind of a trick? Just want to find her. We all have our secrets, Anna. Even you. Are you are you an optimist in, in that sense, or are you are you the same as I suspect a lot of people? Where it's like life's just too good at the moment. This means that any minute now something's going to trip me up. Um, no, I am an optimist. Actually, are you? <laughs> I was thinking, whoa, here we go. Nothing, we can, go. nothing can possibly go wrong. You know, all life. I'm not on a constant high. <laughs> you know, I'm a realist, but um, you know, I think I think we all tick over quite well. Jennifer, thank you so much for oh, coming pleasure. on. Back to you, Dottie. Right, guys, this podcast is called What to Watch on Netflix. So I must get your Netflix recommendations. Starting with you, Julian. 
What is something that you've absolutely loved on Netflix? I now have to remember what everything's on, which, of course, is almost impossible <laughs> to do. Um, I did. I have enjoyed The Crown. There's no question about that. I did enjoy it. I find now, as it's getting a little bit nearer modern day, I feel more uncomfortable with it. When it was in the 40s and 50s, it felt like watching dramatised history. Now I slightly feel that this family is having their windows pushed open against their will. And, I, and I, so I'm not sure how much further I'll go, but I have enjoyed The Crown very much. And I thought the um, acting in it was terrific. It would help if we could decide here and now on your name. My name? Yes, ma'am. Your regnal name. Uh, that is the name you will take as queen. Let's not overcomplicate matters unnecessarily. My name is Elizabeth. And long live Queen Elizabeth. Do you watch it and think, this would never exist without Downton? Oh, I don't think the crown was dependent on Downton at all. I think there is an absolute fascination with the royal family um, that is as strong as ever. And whether you produce the film with Helen Mirren or the television series with Claire Foy, uh, there's a huge body of people out there who are just hoping you've got it right. They are hoping it's accurate enough for them to end up knowing more than they knew at the beginning. I don't think they were anything to do with Downton. You're more humble than me, Julian. I would have been claiming every minute of that. <laughs> uh, Sam, what have you Well, have you I enjoyed The Irishman recently. How, how, how oh, many yes, I enjoyed The Irishman yeah. too. How many <laughs> sittings? Did you watch it in one sitting? All in one. All in one, which I have to say, I am very prone to falling asleep even in the most exciting movies and TV shows. I, I'm, you know, my kids always laugh and say, how long will it be before you fall asleep in the cinema? And I somehow stayed awake throughout the whole of The Irishman, which I think, you know, to me is testament enough. Because I don't you just think... watch it all the way through without turning it off at all? I, well, I went to see it in the cinema. Oh, I went, my God. I went to see it in the cinema because they released <laughs> yeah, it in the too. cinema. And, and I, you know, I think I did have a couple of double espressos before I went in. But I managed to see the whole thing through, and I haven't done that in any film, especially in a cinema, which I find, you know, very, um, what's the word, soporific. Is that the word, Julian? That's the word. That's the one I'd use. Uh, yeah. Um, I somehow got through it. So what a movie that must Incredible. be. Incredible. It took me five business days to watch that. <laughs> but I watched it on television, and I like the fact that you can, I, all in one evening, I didn't, didn't Good break for you. it up. But I did get up and make a drink and then get mm -hmm. down and then get up, make dinner, <laughs> get down, look for some pudding. Uh, and everything. So I had little sort of snatches of break and then I would go back to it. But I did complete the movie and I, I thought it was marvellous. I thought Robert De Niro was marvellous. I thought Al Pacino was fantastic as Jimmy Hoffa. Yes. yes. Of course, yes. I could remember when it, we all knew Jimmy Hoffa. He was the sort of one of those worldwide names and I don't think I'm ever prepared for the fact that, you know, my, my wife, never mind my child, my wife will say, who's Rita Hayworth? And I think, and a, a sort of stab in my chest. Uh, how can they be forgotten? And, and, and I, I loved that, the whole dramatising of that. What was a very, very dramatic story at the time. I mean, the newspapers were absolutely full of it. I loved it, actually. I thought it was great, but I think Scorsese is great. Mr. Sheeran, do you know who, if anyone, was behind the disappearance 
of James Hoffman. Everybody who ever had anything to do with Jimmy was hauled in and questioned. On the advice of counsel, I respectfully declined to answer that question on the grounds that it might tend to incriminate me. Andy, what are you watching on Netflix? Um, there's an American stand-up comedian called John Mulaney who I discovered through Netflix who I am almost borderline obsessed with now. He's got two stand-up specials that are on Netflix and he did a he did a one-off um, which was a kind of a spoof parody of a kids TV show like a Sesame Street kind of thing which was released just before Christmas and that was just incredibly funny as well. He's just really um, he's really well spoken and slightly camp and but he's just his wit is incredible. I think he's one of the best stand-ups that's out there at the minute. Um, so there's, yeah, John Mulaney for me. What you're about to see is a children's TV special, and I made it on purpose. Sam and Andy, or as I call you now, Sandy, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on What to Watch on Netflix. That's That's right, yes. And Julian Fellows, thank you so much for the English game. No, I'm delighted to be here. Well, and, and thank you. I hope it um, goes down well, as they say. Thanks so much for your recommendations, guys. But really, what do you know? Nothing. Let's head over to somebody who actually works at Netflix HQ. Gina. Gina, hello. I am back to beg you for some insider info on what we can view this weekend on Netflix. What have you got for me? Okay, so today's list. Formula One, Drive to Survive, season two, dropped today. If you're interested in racing, fast cars, um, athleticism, teamwork, uh, competition... All of those buzzwords, all of that and more is given to you in this show. It's a good one for anybody who's like Formula One, but also like some heart and some stories too. Oh, you never get to know what's behind the lives of those drivers. They're more than just laps. What's beyond the laps? <laughs> what, is beyond, what is beyond the laps? That's the next documentary. That's, that's the next Netflix series. <laughs> beyond the laps, season one. Uh, what else have you got? Another one is I Am Not Okay With This. So this is a new one, uh, dropped a couple of days ago, and I'm going to read you the premise and set the scene a little bit. So, a team navigates the complexities of high school, family, and sexuality while dealing with new superpowers. So, got teen in it, superpowers, um, drama of high school, drama of family, all sorts going on. Really, really, really great watch. I 100% recommend watching this one. It's a great new show. What else have you got for us? RuPaul Drag Race season twelve. Yes, this is this is what I live for. It's ready for the taking. It's on Netflix now. So anyone who's a fan of RuPaul Drag Race, I mean we're on season twelve now. You know what it is. It's a great show. Uh, fantastic drag queens, fantastic lip singing. Everything is great. Oh, more lip syncing for your life. More snatch game. This is it. And the best thing about it is you don't even have to watch the previous series because it's so good you can just dive right in. There is no excuse not to be watching RuPaul's Drag Race. Just saying. Oh, Gina, Shantae, you stay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. <laughs> we appreciate you endlessly for these recommendations. Next week, we'll be back for more. Yes, and I will be awaiting in my dark room, as always. Speak to you then. Bye. Guys, another incredible episode in the can. But as we near the end of the series, it's time to bring out the big guns. Next week, a legend, David Attenborough. What to Watch on Netflix is hosted by me, Dottie, and is written and produced by Jamie East. Editing and additional production comes from Cup and Nuzzle. What are you watching on Netflix? We'd love to know. Get in touch with us on Twitter at Netflix UK. Netflix UK. 